Welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Joining me today is Nick Parkoff and Andy Burning. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning. Hello. So if you don't mind, Nick, can we just start? You have a really interesting story on how you ended up in Vermont. Do you mind just telling people kind of how you got into EMS and how you came over here? Yeah, so I was a California kid, uh, moved to Vermont back in the late 90s and um, went to the University of Vermont and was really interested in getting into their EMS program. Uh, started out as a volunteer kid on UVM Rescue and then worked with the likes of South Bronx Fire Department and the Burlington Fire Department. And then that just uh, really made me interested in transitioning to the fire side. So uh, after a few years, graduated, moved around a little bit, came back, got hired with South Burlington and have been there since uh, 2004. And did you, you did your paramedic program through- University it? of Vermont. Yep. That was yep. the first pilot program back in 2010. Nice. Nice. Cool. And Andy, you're not from Vermont, right? No, similar story. Uh, from Minnesota, came to Vermont through St. Michael's College, found the fire and rescue program through a friend. It wasn't exactly why I went there, but went down that route, did it for three years, really enjoyed it, took a break after graduation and realized I missed it. Started working at Burlington about five years ago. And got more into the EMS side than when I was at St. Mike's. I was more on the fire side there, but really enjoyed it, enjoyed the challenges, and started my paramedic program last fall. It is really interesting how that happens. I remember being a volunteer fire guy, and I didn't really have a lot of EMS interest. And then when I started looking at career jobs, it became very clear that that was supposed to be a priority. And if I think back from when I was a volunteer to now and the differences of how I look at EMS, it's really interesting. Because I remember going to some bad wrecks, and you'd see the the patient there, and you'd kind of be doing your fire stuff, and you'd be like, oh, that doesn't look very good. Like, EMTs, you better get over here. <laughs> and now, like, my brain, when I go to those things, it immediately goes into medical mode. It's just so interesting how, you know, you know, years of training can change how you look at different calls. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, so. I think that speaks volumes of if you want a job in the career fire service, you better have a EMS mindset because it just goes hand in hand no matter where you go. It does, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, we recently had that that fire in Burlington, you know, and that's something where you may be showing up with all your fire gear and you have your your head set towards fire operations and then all of a sudden a victim comes out. And that's one of the arguments towards fire-based EMS is the ability to just seamlessly transition, you know, pull someone out of a building and render care, especially at the paramedic level. And that's really unique. And I think we get a lot of people that apply for our department and other departments and that talk to me about applying around the country and they have this idea that they're going to ride the back step like FDNY and never touch a BVM again. And I think if you're interested in fire-based EMS in New England outside of a handful of cities, you know, you really have to understand that EMS is going to be part of your job. And at least for me, one of the reasons I'm so interested in it is because I feel like on a day-to-day basis, I do a lot more palpable good on the ambulance than I do on the fire truck. You know, I, I feel like I have a really big impact sometimes on the ambulance. So Yeah, and someone in your position, for you guys who have been, you know, on the job for about five years, you have way more uh, decision-making capabilities. You know, it's more critical thinking that goes on, uh, more leadership capabilities when you are the seat riders of an ambulance, you know, the, the lead paramedic, so to speak, as opposed to the backstep person that's just sort of, standing watching what the fire officer is doing. So yes, I've always said that it's not necessarily as a paramedic, it's not necessarily a promotion. It's more of a lateral promotion. You know, you're not going up in rank per se, um, but it does give you a little more clout on calls. It does give you a little more decision-making capabilities. So yeah, it is. It's definitely a cool experience, especially being a junior guy. You know, you look at somebody like Corey Souza, you know, they come in on the ground floor 
and they may be one of those ducklings on the far calls for the most part all the time because we got a lot of senior guys that can make decisions like that. But if somebody's really sick and you're you're a paramedic with good skills and people trust you, it's kind of cool to be in a position where you got you know a 20, 25 year guy being like, "Hey, what do you want, kid?" Right. Like right. it's kind of cool. It's a cool kind of cyclical relationship. So yep. that's really unique. So anyway, today what I want to talk about is just because, um, Nick, we have you here and Andy, um, we have you with your experience. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what are some of the challenges that students are going through today in the world that we live in. And obviously there's a gigantic pandemic and nobody can go anywhere. Nobody can do anything. So how do we get these critical jobs of paramedics and paramedic training through in a time like this? Yeah, so obviously the the big challenge of students today, whether you're an EMT student, an advanced student, a paramedic student, is in light of COVID, you're sort of handcuffed in your clinical experience. And we were talking about this before, sort of off the record, um, about the experience of students today. And it's all via Zoom. And it's, you know, self-study. It's PowerPoint after PowerPoint. And there's nothing tangible about your educational experience. And we couple that with the fact that you're getting zero clinical time in a hospital setting. That's where you learn. That's, that's the most important part of any program is actually working and seeing uh, real patients and working with physicians and working with nurses and working with respiratory therapists. So how do you overcome that? Right. It's you, you cannot become a competent EMT or paramedic just by watching Zoom lectures or just by peeling back PowerPoint slide out of PowerPoint slide. So if we are in a position where there is zero clinical opportunities, how do you how do you overcome that? And I think you have to make your own clinical opportunities when you're at work. So for like Andy, you're you're kind of in a good position because you work in a busy EMS system. So right. you're constantly exposed to call after call after call. And by making your own clinical experience, if you see a sick patient in the ER that's not necessarily your patient, don't be afraid to go nudge the doctor and say, "Hey, what's going on over there? They look, you know, they look pretty sick. What what are you thinking?" Or if you do have a sick patient, following up and staying back and talking to the nurses, talking to the physicians, being like, "Hey, here's my differential. I think this person is having an MI. What were you thinking?" So you're constantly in that student mindset even though you're not on clinical hours per se, but your mindset is always of that of a student and you're constantly asking questions, um, you know, trying to expose yourself to different patients. And because UVM is such a great teaching hospital and all the physicians are really, I shouldn't say all, there's a few that kind of like, they're going to see it and be like, yeah, move on kid. But for the most part, you're going to figure out who is the, the educator, so to speak. They're going to be more than willing to share all that information with you. So I think that's one way of overcoming it. Uh, second way is seeking out the, the EMS elders, so to speak. So like if you have a sick patient and you don't have the opportunity to talk to a nurse or a physician, but you see me up in the ER or you see, you know, the likes of a, a Timmy Ferris or Will Moran, guys that have had a lot of experience, come up to us, show us the rhythm strip. Be like, hey, here, here's what I was presented with. Make that sort of a, a clinical experience. So for, so for example, when I got out of paramedic school, I spent some time on ambulance one downtown. It was kind of isolating because after I got clear with district three, I was kind of by myself. There wasn't really any other medics near me. I didn't really work with anyone else. I was kind of doing my own thing. And something I realized is even after you get out of school and after you get cleared by your district and you're kind of on your own, 
when you're new like I am, it still is super valuable to have a mentor. And it's one of the reasons I transferred to the truck I'm on now is because because Brad Wilson was a senior guy there, uh, you know, and he's got 20 plus years as a paramedic. And that was something where I knew that I could come back from a call and be like, you know, hey, man, like this is what I just had. This is what you know, this is what went down. This is what I did. What do you think? And it was really cool because he has a lot of perspective coming from where he's come from in the country and doing other different things. It was so much of a relationship that I'd come back at two o'clock in the morning and everyone would be sleeping and Brad be sitting in the kitchen, like eagerly awaiting like Christmas morning to yeah. see, like, you have an EKG? Like, oh, that's cool, man. What'd you do? Like, I remember the first time I did push dose pressure with him. He's like, yo, what was that? What did you just do? I'm like, oh, that's push dose epi. He's like, push dose epi. And we came back and he like, yeah. I showed it all to him. He's like, that's a cat's pajamas, man. Let's do that. Like, and that's, that's the relationship that really... I think accelerated my EMS career as a paramedic was working with somebody like that, where we could go to calls and, you know, say there's a potential sedation. He could be like, Hey, I'm thinking this. I'd be like, Hey, I'm thinking this. Why are you thinking that? Because of this, because of that. And to be able to have that give and take, you know, there's that old expression. You only, if you're in the same environment, you only learn what that environment's going to share with you. Right, like you're right. just constantly going to relearn the same thing. So that's why it's so good to do, you know, clinical at, Burlington Hospital at, you know, uh, Bennington Hospital at in New Hampshire and Maine, like wherever you can go to get as many opinions as you can, because it builds that huge toolbox filled with ideas as opposed to just the same preceptor all the time. You're right. That's the other challenge is actually getting out in the street. You know, Andy, I'm not sure where you guys are going, but back when I was in paramedic school, the uh, overall I had a great program, great experience, but I was only, I was handcuffed to two ride sites. Um, and they were fine, but there was only two and you meet other paramedics that, you know, they go in busy systems, hospital based systems, and they're just, you know, on fly cars. And, um, I'm not sure where you guys are slated to go, but that, that's also another challenge if you don't have anything really set up. Yeah. Right now with COVID, we're pretty much restricted to just where we're working or volunteering. Yep. So Andy, you want to talk just a little bit about what your experience has been like in class? How do they... So, for example, when I went through and did lab, you would go into the lab rooms and you do lab stuff. Are they still doing that stuff with you? So they start out with um, the week is set up as you do some online learning and then you show up once a week to class and you have a full day of lab that reflects that online learning component that you try to take from what you learned and then use it in the classroom. Nice. And do you find yourself kind of... um, looking towards people when you're on shift, you know, or, or people that you know to solidify content outside the classroom, you know, like a, a paramedic that works on your shift, or do you feel like you're asking questions at work? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I'm asking questions all the time. With the way that the program is run right now with the restrictions of COVID, I'm not a great online learner. So I, it's kind of like the way the course is run. It's putting a lot more on the student to facilitate their own learning. You can't just show up for the three-hour online lecture and then show up to class and expect to be able to perform the the lab skills as, as appropriate. I spent hours in the training rooms at work with uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick going over 12 leads, strips, how to, how to give medications, and then we'll go on a call and then we'll be able to kind of, uh, maybe if the patient isn't sick, but we can kind of say, well, what if this happened? What if that happened? And kind of run through that whole scenario. Yeah. And Nick, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the common themes I see with really great providers that I've worked for is the ability to think two or three steps ahead of what's happening right now. You know, you, you look at somebody and they're, you know, sweaty, pale, diaphoretic, like you're prepared. If you need to work down that ACLS algorithm, you have an idea of what you're going to do. You know, maybe you pull the bags out, maybe you get the monitor set up, but 
you know, even if you're not doing it at that moment, you're always thinking of what could happen and you're kind of getting mentally prepared for that stuff. Absolutely. And that's, that comes with time, um, knowing what's going to happen down river, so to speak. Um, you know, knowing that, okay, I'm looking at this patient, they're, you know, pale, they have a crappy blood pressure, they're breathing like a guppy, they have a terrible end title, their sats are in the tank. You know what they're going to wind up looking like down in the ER. You know they can be admitted to the ICU. So it's not just, okay, uh, I'm going to do this one intervention. You know down the road what they need. And it's not just the breathing intervention, but they may need a presser, they're going to need fluid, they're going to need CPAP. You, you have an understanding of not just what's going on, but what they need in an overall treatment plan. Yeah. And we're actually going to have Matt Luft on the show pretty soon here. And we're oh, gonna, I love that guy. Yeah, he's great. He's and he's got awesome. a perfect radio voice. So yep. we're going to have him on and he's going to be talking about, you know, expe- expected clinical outcomes of patients once we drop them off and working with the nurses. And obviously, you know, Nick and I have a pretty unfair advantage because we can just go home and talk about this stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but some of the things that, you know, I think you're referring to is stuff like, you know, if you have a patient that needs a sepsis workup, you know, that you're going to chloroprep the IV, you know, or if you have a stroke patient, you could put a pressure lock, you know, pressure rated lock on, or if they're going to get admitted, you go into the forearm instead of the AC joint, you know, things like that, that are going to help the kind of seamless transition of care as they move throughout their process in the hospital. But something that you talked about earlier is totally right. I think the clinical component is so valuable. I remember coming back from my ICU rotations just thinking, man, I learned more in two shifts in the ICU than I did in a semester of pharmacology. Oh, absolutely. Like and you- those, especially those, uh, the pharmacists up in the ICU, if you want a mind-blowing experience talking about pressors and what different types of pressors there are, you just sit back and watch these you know, doctors of pharmacy just regurgitate all the information about beta one beta two cells and just it's amazing makes you makes you feel dumb yeah and what you got to do is when the morning rounds come around like in the icu they do rounds i think it's like like 9 or 8 a.m or something which i used to love so basically what that is is all the care team you know the lead nurse the attending physician the residents the medical students all go from room to room most of the time all the patients are sedated anyway but they just go from room to room and they go from top to bottom about What's wrong with this person? Why are in the ICU? What are they doing? How is it working? What are they going to do tomorrow? And it's really interesting because you'll have those pharmacists up there who are super, super intelligent. And if you ever get a chance to watch that stuff, just get a big bowl of popcorn and just sit back and watch that because you'll see, you'll inevitably see some medical student or resident walk into the trap of, well, I would give this. And the pharmacist is like, well, that would be good if you're trying to kill them. And you're like, oh man. <laughs> so you just, that's, but you can learn so much from that stuff, just listening and talking and like Nick said, they, they're a level one center, which means they have a teaching component. So they know that people are going to be asking questions. It's not a shock. You know, this isn't like some inner city hospital somewhere where they're cranking them, cranking them out. Like I had the attending physician of the um, ICU explaining EKGs to me. And I was like, oh, wow, thank you very much. And then later I went and read some stuff and every like article I read about a certain topic, it's like, oh, like you know, Joshua Fargus, I was like, oh man, like that guy sat and talked with EKGs with me, you know, like they'll talk with you. And there's nothing more rewarding for those preceptors than a student that's just so hungry and ask questions is interesting, you know, so don't be afraid to do that. I don't think anyone, and Nick can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anyone would fault you for asking questions. People oh, love that. Not at all. Yeah. You know, the other thing too, someone like you, Andy, that's, that's in the street working a busy system is uh, continuously follow up with your patients. So I know District 3 has an email, uh, EMS follow-ups, I think, um, or your medical advisor can probably look patients up. So I just did this the other day. 
dropped off a train wreck of a patient, thought they were septic with COPD exacerbation. It was just a train wreck of a patient. And our uh, EMS director is Dr. Dolbeck. And I shot her an email. Hey, just looking to see what his diagnosis and how he turned out. And um, just so that way you understand, okay, were my interventions correct? Was my differential spot on? Um, you know, uh, did my interventions help? So, And you get some cool answers. Like I've had some, for sure, I've had some patients where you drop them off and you're like, man, I don't really know. I think this maybe. And they'll come back and they'll be like, oh, it's this crazy blood infection, this, that, the other thing. Or simple, simple things. You know, I had a, a GI bleed patient who had a SpO2 set of like 97% and looked terrible. Like he couldn't breathe, like pale, diaphoretic, terrible, terrible, terrible. And we brought him to the hospital and I was having a conversation with the engine company that had picked him up. And they were like, well, his SpO2 is 97%. Like, why did, and I was like, I wonder if he's like, maybe he's got, maybe he has blood loss. Maybe it's yeah, some sort of, low. yeah, right. Yeah. And we get to the hospital, terrible. Like he's like half of what he's supposed to be. And then you can even get copies of those numbers and bring it back and be like, all right, guys, hey, good training point. Like just because he has a SAT of 97% doesn't mean don't put him on auction. Like if they look terrible and you know they've been bleeding, like what's, what's it going to hurt him? You know, maybe it's going to make him feel better. And stuff like that is stuff you learn from follow-up because there's a lot of stuff we can't we can't see on the ambulance. Like my favorite one is a trope, right? You, you pick someone up and you're like, man, they don't look good. Or like mm-hmm. they got the chest pains, you know, as they say in the inner city, the chest pains. <laughs> and uh, and you don't know what's going on. And then you come back and it's like, yeah, this trope was like 175. And you're like, holy crap, you know. And The thing that's bit me the last couple of times, the really sick patients has, have been uh, their potassium, yep. uh, hyperkalemic. And yep. you don't. You know, unless they're a dialysis patient where you have lab values, that's something that is kind of on the periphery that, you know, I've been doing this for a while now that I need to really remember, okay, maybe they're hyperkalemic or hypokalemic. And um, those lab values that we don't get, it's nice to see those after the fact. Because then it kind of like you're talking about with your patient, oh, the hematocrit was terrible. Like, that makes sense. But you only understand that if you go back and follow up. So it's a good opportunity to learn. Yep. And for those of you that are listening, if you're at the paramedic level or you are becoming a paramedic, your secret code 321 homework is to find out the association between pH and potassium. Uh, That's your fun. There's actually an equation that you can tell. So it's pretty interesting. So hmm. anyway, moving on. So the next thing I want to talk about is, Nick, you put a lot of people through different programs. I know you've precepted a lot of people. You've had to take care of a lot of people at South Burlington and a lot of students that come in and out. And you've obviously taught for us a bunch in the past, too. Let's talk about the process of getting a student to competency, where they're performing it 90% of the time without any mistakes. So Andy shows up for his first shift. What are some things you're going to do to try to set him up for success before he ever gets on the ambulance? So I think first and foremost is go get a cup of coffee and have a have a 10-minute conversation of just like the expectations, right? And sit in the back of the ambulance with a cup of coffee before you even like open the bags and look at the monitor. It's essentially what I do with uh, students is, you know, hey, Andy, welcome to Ambulance One South Burlington. Today, you are just going to be focusing on patient assessment. That is it. I want you to interview the patient, get a good differential and tell me what you think. So that sort of takes the anxiety away of, oh man, I need to call the hospital and I need to get the IV and I need to figure out the drug equations. It's nope, let's let's walk before we start. Or actually, let's crawl before we start walking and just give me a good assessment. Because it, it, if you don't have the foundation of a good assessment, everything else doesn't really matter. So for me, I need to figure out for my students, 
how is your patient assessment skills? How is your differential diagnosis? Like, are you spot on? Or are you way out in right field? Because that's going to sort of dictate how, where we go from there. Um, after that, and then that usually could take, you know, a few calls. It could take a few weeks. It all depends on, I think your experience level, your comfort level, what your, your background is. Um, you know, from there, if I know, okay, you're, you're good with your people skills are spot on your assessment's great. You're asking the right questions in the right order. Then you sort of peel back the layers of, okay, next are, are your hands-on. Let me see you do an IV. And before you do an IV on the patient, I want to see you do it on our training arm. Um, understanding your drug box, you know, opening up that drug box. And I'm going to quiz you on every single drug, not just a medic drug, but all the A drugs. And start with the A drugs. Because how many times are you asking a patient or a, a student, all right, talk to me about nitro. What are you giving nitro for? You know, what's the dose? What are the side effects? What are your contraindications? And they're like, well, I'm, I'm all in presser mode and I'm all in dilt mode. And, and you got to start with the basics before you move on. Um, and having a clear, I think, understanding of what your role is, which is just that of a student. And I never have my students manage the scene. You are managing the patient. I, I think that that's not my job to teach you to be a good uh, scene delegator like you're here to learn to be a paramedic and do assessments and to figure out the right drugs and to figure out the right algorithms that you want to go down let me handle the patient extrication let me handle figuring out are we going to do stair chair are we going to carry them down um you know that's not your role as a student yeah and i think and andy you can attest this too i think in burlington we do a really good job of letting the paramedics be paramedics yeah, i absolutely. really i i really appreciate all those officers that take good care of me you know, when I show up on a, let's say cardiac arrest, because that's a classic one, I know that the captain or lieutenant or whatever, they know that they're probably going to do some record keeping. They're going to be working with the family, coordinating with the PD, getting resources in and out. And they're probably going to be in charge of assigning somebody to get that plan of moving the patient out of wherever they are. And I love the fact that you can just swoop in and kind of do your thing. You know, right. you can just be, you can just be the paramedic. You can t look at the patient, you can coordinate the patient care, you can kind of be in that little bubble. And I know for some of you that are listening, you may not have that luxury if you're not getting fire companies, you know, responding with you, or maybe you're by yourself or whatever. Just know that you can do the same thing, even if you have a police officer there. You know, you can you can be like, hey, I need you to work on a plan to get him from the basement to the first floor. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that stuff out. Um, but I think you're spot on with everything you just said, Nick. I mean, that makes huge huge difference. Yeah, and, and if you're the preceptor, I think the attitude of less is more is huge for students. So you know. Having that conversation of, all right, here's, here's what I want you to do. And then I really do think you should pre-plan bad patients. So like cardiac arrests or strokes and it's okay. Um, this isn't our first day together. I know you know how to do an assessment. I've seen do IVs. So if we get a really terrible patient, I want you just to focus on airway. That's it. I remember doing a cardiac arrest when I was a student and my preceptor was all over the place. And he had me trying innovation. He had me running the monitor. He had me doing the drug calculations. And it was just like way too much as opposed to, hey, Andy, we're going to a code. And you can kind of pre-plan this going to the call. Like we're going to a code. All I want you to do is manage the airway. And I want you to put in an OPA and a BVM. And then from there, I want you to at least try and get a view of the cords and try and do an innovation. And if you can't, then I'll come over and I'll give you a hand. And if you still can't, then, you know, throw in a superglottic airway. But just focusing on one task, less is more, is more beneficial. Yeah, and I think you're right about sitting down with them and trying to have a little bit of a conversation before you get going. Obviously, you can't plan out every single call. Right. 
But for me, I know I've, I've been working with one of our individuals who's who just got cleared for his paramedic. And one of the things that we had a discussion on when just just bounce around the kitchen one day, we said like, hey, tell me your airway algorithm. Like you have someone who needs to be innovative. What's your plan? Like, and we talked about the difference between like your attempts versus a rescue airway versus like, you know, a crash airway and like the different types of, you know, different equipment he would use. Are you going to do video with a bougie? Or are you going to do direct? Like what if the video dies midway through? Like just these things of doing, you know, almost like a tabletop of what his plan is, right? you know, and making sure that because what we don't want, and Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is you don't want somebody that, you know, has a rendoscope in there and all of a sudden is like, I can't see anything. I can't do anything. And you're like, well, right. what are you going to do? Like, I don't know. Right. Like, you got to have that plan. Like we talked about before, you want to think two or three steps ahead of where you're at. You know, if they crash, what am I going to do? If this doesn't work, what am I going to do? And a good preceptor is going to recognize a good student. And a good preceptor is going to have that already sort of ironed out about, We've had the conversation with this student over a cup of coffee over terrible airways and how do you overcome that? Or um, I've had the conversation with a patient with uh, tacky dysrhythmias and what he's thinking and when when are we going to use electricity versus when are we going to do uh, uh, chemical conversion. So that's all being a good preceptor is, is just, I mean, you have usually a full day, an entire day with the student and you should never just say, all right, uh, this is where you're going to sit. Here's your uh, traffic vest and go in the back of the training room and ask me if you have any questions about the the kidneys. You know, like <laughs> you should be uh, engaged with that person for a good part of the day. Yeah, and I know my clinical experiences were that. You know, I think the services that I went to, they didn't just have a blanket preceptorship. They, they had specific people that they knew were like that. And to the point where there were some ride sites I went to where like, they'd be like, Hey, how are you doing? Get a cup of coffee. Like you need to hit the head or anything. No. Okay. Like this is, you know, this is your vest, whatever. Come on in the ambulance for a second. And I would walk in and they'd just put the drug bag on the, on the stretcher and then be like, what's this one? Right. What's this one? Like just, and it wasn't because like they thought I was stupid. They just want to make sure because they know like if it's say your shift starts at eight, if it's eight, 10 in the morning, and, you know, and you're like, oh, bam, this drug does this. We're going to draw it up this way. You got to be careful of that. Like, you got to use a filter. Like, if you are hammering it out of the park at 8, 10 in the morning with your drugs, what's the likelihood that you're prepared to do your skills pretty well? Probably pretty decent, right? right. Because if you put that much time and energy into learning that material, you're probably going to put time and energy into being successful on the skill side. Yeah, absolutely. I think those tabletop scenarios that you were talking about and those quizzes are super important for as a student preceptor relationship because um, – it's treat the day as a, as a class almost. You can't just sit on your hands and wait for a cardiac call to come through. If you do that, you're not going to get as much experience. So those tabletops and those questions are really important for, for the day as a student. Yeah. And, and Nick, you said something really interesting the last time we were talking about being familiar with your equipment. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about how students can set themselves up for success with equipment? Yeah. So one of the things that I learned sort of the hard way was when I went down to do my first ride time, it was down in Concord, New Hampshire. And, um, you know, I get in the back of the truck and I'm like, oh boy, they have uh, life packs. I'm not used to life packs. We have Zoles. And boom, right? You get a call right out of the gates. And it's like, before they've even told me where to sit and who's in charge, it's like, we're going to, we're going to a call. And um, so right out of the gates, I'm like, behind the eight ball of, okay, I don't know how to use a monitor. And the monitor is like sort of our lifeline when you're a paramedic. Um, and I had been an ENT for 10 years before I went to paramedic school. So I was confident in like my IV skills and whatnot. So we show up in this diabetic patient and they need an IV and the priest was like, you want to do an IV? I'm like, yeah, I can do an IV. No problem. Well, I take out the catheter and it's one of those push button yeah, retractable yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. 
And I'm fumbling with that, and I can just see the eyeballs in the back of my head being like, this dude said that he had, you know, had his stuff together, and he's fumbling with a simple IV. That is terrible. Yeah, you know, I get the IV, and I push the button, and out comes the needle, and it starts bleeding everywhere. And, you know, I hear the monitor say, check patient. You look over, and you don't know how to silence things, and you just, you're totally flustered. And as a student, right out of the gates, if you're totally flustered, your day is shot. Yeah. You know, your day is completely shot. So I think to overcome that, Figuring out where you're riding with and who you're who you're riding with and where is huge because you can make a simple phone call if you live close by, pop in the station and be like, "Hey, hey Nick, I'm I'm Andy. I'm gonna be riding with you next week. Uh, you mind if I take a look around and just see what monitor you guys have, what kind of IV catheters that you have, uh, what kind of CPAP uh, unit that you have? I mean, because everyone carries different things, and the worst thing you can do is come in and tell your preceptor, "Hey, I, I, I'm." I'm squared away on all my skills. Uh, I've got my stuff dialed in. And then all of a sudden we go to a code and I hand you a King Vision and you're like, what is this? I don't know how to use this. So taking the time to get in there, meet your preceptor if you can, um, understanding what they have for a monitor, understanding what they have for airway kits, understanding what they have for IV catheters. It's huge. Yeah, and people love that. Every, all the preceptors I ever worked for, when you talk about that stuff, they eat it up. Like what they want is those students that are like, Hey man, like this is a life pack. Like, can you just show me where the buttons are? Like, how do I do this? What if I want to do this? Like, how do I do it? Cause they have positioned themselves to know those answers and it's rewarding for them to be able to share that with somebody and see you kind of like a hungry, hungry hippo eating it all up. And I think that's an experience that the preceptors want to see, you know, as opposed to that guy, like Nick was saying that shows up and is like, yeah, no, I've, I've innovated like 30 people. I'm all set. And then you get there and you're like, well, not with this thing. Right. Like, I don't know what this is. And then all of a sudden now you look like a complete moron and you've lost confidence in your, uh, the preceptors lost confidence in you. And uh, you know, then it's just not a smooth working relationship. That's the best advice I give to people who are taking their AEMT exam. Like, especially if they go down to um, New Hampshire or if they're doing it in some other part of Vermont, I always tell them, I'm like, listen, if you've done IVs with the same equipment your whole life, bring your equipment with you like, right. and show it to the NREMT rep because I can't, I can't tell you how many A students I've heard of that have failed their IV station because they got that style catheter and they'd never seen it before. Have you ever used that push button catheter? No. It, yeah, still yeah, doesn't, yeah. it still doesn't make yeah. sense to me. I'm like, this thing is terrible. And it, it's like eight inches long. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just it's not user-friendly. And no. so when he, I'll never forget when he handed me that, I was like, what the oh, hell is no. this? Yeah, yeah. And you, you're trying to be calm and cool and be like, oh, yeah, I, I got this. And you yeah. undo it and you're looking around like, what is yeah. this thing? What I does know. this white button do? Oh, I see how that yeah. does. And all Apparently of a sudden, that. Yeah, they're bleeding out <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, we had, a, we had a guy recently that we hired that had only used the self-tamponading um, IV catheters. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Where you, you retract it and it, the lot, you know, it automatically blocks it off for you. And obviously we don't have those. You know, so then he went to do an IV and, you know, I was reaching over to get the tegaderm, not holding any tamponade because the old cat, you know, and the lady's bleeding all over the place. And of course, you know, this guy's a seasoned guy and everyone else is like, what is happening? What are you doing? You never done an IV before. And it's like, in reality, it's just equipment. That's the only difference that, 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 that right. you know, why that situation happened. You know, and Nick, something you said last time, which I thought was really interesting is not only stopping by, but I mean, we're obviously pretty hard hitting and we're out, you know, getting those uh, calls back to back to back, you know, the 5400s. But other than that, you could call the station. We may be around, probably not in the recliners, but if we do answer the phone, we can certainly answer questions that you have, you know, like absolutely. I would love, I wish that I knew you better when I was going through my program because I would have called you like every day and been like, hey, man, like I had this call. Like, what about this? And that's the other point I want to drive home as we wrap it up here is just because 
say you have a paramedic in your station. If you don't really jive amazingly with that paramedic, or maybe they're in a place in their life where they're not really providing as much teaching and instruction as you want, there is nothing in the world saying that you can't connect with other people, you know? Totally. And one of the reasons why we have our instructor cadre that we have here at NETS is because everybody that works for us shares that passion and is really good at what they do. There's not a single person that's on our roster that can't sit down and have a conversation like this and really enjoy it and provide some sort of interesting information to somebody. So if you're ever looking for something and you can't find anyone to talk to, go on our website. It's netsvt.com and just click on the contact us page. Any one of those people, they're our top people. They can talk to you about anything you want to talk about. We got flight paramedics. We got guys from New York City. We got guys from all over the country, you know, Colorado, Myrtle Beach, everywhere. So if you want to talk to somebody about medicine and you feel like you're not getting what you want to get, reach out and make those connections and find someone that has interesting information that you get along with. And, and, you know, I highly recommend what I did, which is find yourself a mentor. Like once you get your paramedic or as you're going through school, just rub shoulders with someone that's really good that you really like that you look up to that's willing to talk to you and just position yourself, you know, at a house or on a truck where you have that type of relationship. And that mentorship goes beyond medicine. You know, it, it's not all just, Paramedicine and drug calculations and 12 leads. I mean, you you can mentor people about getting burned out in the firehouse, getting burned out with paramedicine, you know, um, firehouse dynamics, uh, stuff going on in your life, you know, family stuff. I mean, it just, it, it transcends paramedicine becomes more of a career mentorship. That's part of what I, you know, I, I really enjoy mentoring new firefighters and paramedics because I eventually I do like to get past just drug and what is this EKG? And it's more of just the career aspect of mentoring people. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I really like the professional development piece. I think it's really interesting. Yep. And I've been lucky to have a handful of really good mentors. And those are people that I can call. And no matter what, like you said, like even if I'm just snap the snow shovel over my knee because I'm tired and I'm sick of doing what I'm doing, like they're the type of people like, yeah, man, I feel you. Like I've been there. Like you want to go uh, get a hot chocolate? You want to hang out? Like, right. you know, and, and, those people are what keep you on the right path, you know, and keep you attached to those rails going forward. And I really, in, in my mind, believe with everything that's going on with paramedicine and EMS in general, you got to have somebody that you trust that's got their ear to the ground to kind of help you stay focused because there's so much out there that you can do, especially in kind of the systems we work in with a little bit more of an urban system. It can be really easy to get kind of pulled astray, you know, and then, uh, there's nothing worse than running, you know, 150 calls in a row that don't require more than a C collar. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get that guy and he's in VTAC and he's allergic to amiodarone and, you know, he's not breathing. And then he's got a gag reflex. Like you got that's the challenge I think we face not being in a, in a huge, huge system on medic right. trucks is the fact that we have those, you know, high acuity, low frequency calls. And those are really challenging to stay sharp. And I've always said this, you're, the hardest thing about being a paramedic is running 10 BLS calls during your 24-hour shift. And then at four in the morning, you get handed uh, an absolute dumpster fire of a patient. You've got to figure, you got to tighten it in. You got to, you know, have laser focus and figure, figure things out on zero sleep. And when you've just been pounded with BLS, with mental health, with anxieties, with, you know, minor fender benders, and then all of a sudden you're handed a seasoned kid. And you're on zero sleep and you got to get the IV. You got to figure out your, your benzo dose and you got to manage their airway. And all this is happening when you have had zero sleep on the tail end of a 48 hour shift. So that's the hardest part. 
one yeah. of the hardest. There's there's many hard parts yeah. about our job, but that that's just one of one of many. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things you talked about a little earlier is just just doing those training pieces before that stuff happens. I know, like I used to always get teased by the guys because I always do different drug on the IV pump in the morning. Like I'd go do my rig check and I just grab a med out of the expired med box and I'd mm-hmm. run it through the pump and I just click the buttons, put it in the pump, do whatever, you know, and I located, you know, a lot of problems that I probably wouldn't have picked up on until I did that, you know, something like, like uh, when you do nitro, you know, you got to flip open the bleeder valve because it, you know what I mean? It's a glass bottle, like stuff like that. You don't like you get told it, but if until you do it, you don't really build that muscle. When it's three o'clock in the morning and the person's crashing, you forget to do all those small little steps. Yeah. And me and me and my partner right now, we always joke, we're like a football team in a huddle. Like, you know, we get like a CHF patient, they're really bad. You know, it's like, okay, hut, hut, we're going to get an IV, we're going to get nitro, we're going to get CPAP. We're like, we already know what we're going to do. And like, He's just going to run and I'm going to toss him the ball. And that's what yep. we're going to do. And yep. it, it's awesome to have that type of relationship, but that only happens if you practice, you know what I mean? Like those football teams, they don't just play once a week, you right. know? And right. I think having that practice on your off time is what really makes you perform well under stress. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you for joining us. Hopefully you picked up something on this. Um, keep chugging out there. I know it's hard with the coronavirus. Hopefully this stuff gets all lifted soon. And we get you back in the field and learning about stuff. Um, Andy, Nick, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the us. advice. Appreciate it.